summer long break to look at each of the 12 disciples and kind of concluding that last week with Master Make Me Like You. That's kind of why we sang that song just now, Go to Be Like Me. We're kind of going to now return to the life of Christ as it's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke here. The greatest story ever told. The old Easter movie that's on TV every once in a while, The Greatest Story Ever Told. The greatest story ever told is that God, in his sovereign plan, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem his people from their sin. And Jesus, in his life and in his teaching and in his example, again, as we learned in Sunday school, came to seek out true worshipers, to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come not for the the uh, righteous, but for sinners. He's come to reveal God to us and to reveal the way to be right with God, how to be eternally in his presence, how to be blessed not only in the life to come, but also in this life now. That's what John 10.10 says. I came that they might have life and they might have it to the fullest. That, 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 that really can mean have it so abundantly, have a life that is, that is greater than you could ever dream of. I remember speaking at a baccalaureate service in the pier probably 15 years ago, and I spoke on that passage, John 10, 10, and I was instructing a room full, of course, of unbelieving students, three or 400 graduates, probably, of course, some Christians in that, but I expressed that verse to them. I said, God wants you to have a life better than you could ever dream of. And I imagine students at the cusp of graduation are dreaming of different things or are thinking of different things about where they'd like their life to go and what they'd like their life to be. And maybe you sat there years and years and years ago and thought those same things. The idea that Christ offers a life that is better than you can ever imagine, that people recoil from his teachings. They don't want to have him in their life because they think that the blessed life comes from some other sort of living. It comes from pleasing self or achieving in career or making money. We're at the bookstore. We do this a lot because it's a free outing for our family. We go to the bookstore and we grab a book and we sit there and Max and I went to the religious section in Barnes & Noble. It's a poor section, right? And we pulled out every Joel Osteen book that there was and took a picture of it because there's like nine of his books and every cover is the same. It's his face doing some sort of smile. And I grabbed the book, Your Best Life Now, and I looked at it a little bit. And it's just, it's astonishing. God does not want you in poverty. God does not want you to be, a, God, something like God wants you to be a winner. You know, the, the world's opinion of what it means to be blessed is completely in opposition to what Christ says, especially as he preaches it here in what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has called his 12 disciples. He's picked them, and he's made that selection. We walked through every one of those men's names in verses 12 to 16 this summer. And we've learned about their weaknesses and their strengths and what Christ wants to do in our life and how he wants to make us a true follower of Jesus Christ as well. Well, now, as he comes down off that mountain in verse 17, we've already read that section together, so we're, we're not going to read it again, but you can be having your Bible open and looking at it. He comes down with them off of that mountain and the verse 17 says he's standing on a level place and he gives a sermon which begins in verse 20 and he preaches it up to verse the end of the chapter, really verse 49. And this is called the Sermon on the Plain and it looks real similar to the Sermon on the Mount. 
and people have debated whether or not, and basically there's one of two debates, is this, is this the same sermon that is recorded by two different people from two different perspectives? Now, Matthew probably was at the Sermon on the Mount, not probably, I'm sure he was, after the selection of the twelve and Jesus has his disciples, but Luke wasn't, I'm not, I don't imagine Luke was. So Luke's recording of the Sermon on the Plain in verses 20 to 50 or so is, is his, I uh, remember in Luke 1 he says he interviewed all kinds of eyewitnesses and, and came up with a report, so he interviewed people that were there. So is that the case? Is this really the Sermon on the Mount from Luke's perspective, or is it a completely different sermon, right? That was on a mount, this is on a plain, and, and there's been a lot of debate on that. Is Jesus simply like a traveling preacher who goes over the same topics a lot of times and maybe preached it on a mountain one time and maybe preached on a plane one time, maybe preached in a meadow one time, maybe preached on a boat one time, right? I mean, we've had evangelists in before. We've had Aaron Coffey in. We've had Jeremy Frazier in. I'm sure that Aaron Coffey preached messages here that he preached in other places, and it would seem to make sense that it might be very similar, and could that be the case? Now, there is a difference between this uh, sermon and the sermon that's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, there's eight Beatitudes listed. In this one, there's only four, and they're in a different order. I'm sure this isn't the entirety of the sermon either. For instance, we could read the whole Sermon on the Plain here in Luke 6 in about four minutes. You could read the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, in about 10 minutes. I don't imagine that Jesus, gathering a multitude of thousands of people, preached for 10 minutes. I don't think that's the case. I think what we have here is a summary of a message that Jesus gave probably many times. I'm sure he didn't say these things one time, and I know he said that at this particular instance because this is what the Bible says. Verse 17 to 19 is just kind of a section where we catch our breath before we rush into this huge section on the teaching. And the only thing I want to pull out of verses 17, 18, and 19 is that Jesus was popular and Jesus was powerful. We're going to go on to the teaching in just a minute. But just to kind of, as a segue into the teaching that he's going to make in verse 20, we see that he's popular and that he's powerful. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Verse 17 says, He came down and stood on a level place with a, crowd of his, uh, with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and all the seacoasts were coming and they were coming to hear him be healed and be, uh, be healed of the tormenting that they were experiencing, verse 18, of the unclean spirits. He's popular. People are crowding him from all over. And there are three groups of people that are crowding him. Look in your Bibles. What are the three groups of people? Group of people number one is who? Say? Pharisees. Are you in the right? Are you reading? What Bible are you reading from, son? Are you reading from like the, uh, the message Bible? What do you got there? The Pharisees aren't anywhere near this passage. At least that's okay. The 12. The 12 is first. That's okay. He's thinking about going back to college and his mind is in a different place. <laughs> he comes down with, look at it, he came down with them. Okay, so he's got the 12 with him. He's got them. Then who does he have? Well, no, you're skipping one. I think this, now we're going to go to the disciples. That's a different group of people, you, right? He came down with them and stood with a crowd of his disciples. 
Is 12 a crowd of his disciples? Of course not. So there's other disciples. Remember when he went up on the mountain, he ch- he's choosing the 12 from a group of many disciples, right? Look at verse 13. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself. That's not referring to the 12. That's referring to anybody who is connected with him. He called them to himself, and from them he chose 12. So in verse 17, we have with them, that's the 12. Then we have the disciples. That could be an unknown number of people who are connected to him. And then, as Nick said, you have a multitude. You have the 12, you have the disciples, you have the multitude. Here's how we break them down. You have the core. You have the core of people who are truly following Jesus. Now, I know that this breaks down a little bit because there is a person in that group who is really not part of the core, and that is Judas. He's a phony. But from the perspective of of the Bible reader or the person in that situation, we say, okay, here you've got the 12, and these are... These are the core people. They are, they are connected to Jesus. Then you have what I would call a crowd, a crowd. And in that crowd, there's people who are connected to Jesus. They're kind of interested in what he's saying. They're not truly committed to him. They're just, they're just kind of there, and, and they're, they, they like what they're hearing, and they're, they're interested in what Jesus has to say. And, and then you have the third group, which is the multitude, and that's just the curious those people are curious about Jesus. They maybe even never have met him before. You've got people coming all the way from Tyre and Sidon to hear. There would be some curiosity if we heard about a person in Grand Rapids who was doing some miraculous deeds in Parting Lake, Michigan. Right? We'd, be, we'd be over there. And that's kind of what's happening with Christ. You have a core, you have a, a crowd, and you have the curious. And I bet we have the same type of people in this room right now. We have a core of people that belong to Grace Baptist and know and love Christ, there may be people in that core that are phony. You could be a member of the church. You could sit with the elders and give your testimony. I talked to people this week who bear no fruit of Christianity, show no signs of any sort of commitment to Christ, and when asked, what do you do to enter into a relationship with God, they answer, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Is that right or wrong? This is not a trick question. Is that right or wrong? It's right. But people can say things without meaning them, without understanding them. And so in that core of people, you say, well, I'm, I'm trying to ask you, well, what group are you in? You say, well, I'm in the core. I'm here every time the church is open. I'm on the membership roll. I even serve. I do what? Okay, great. I hope that that... That is true, and I hope that you really belong to Christ. Then you have what we call the crowd, and these are people that, that sprinkle in from time to time. And, and some maybe truly are committed to Christ, but they aren't really, they aren't really uh, fulfilling all the demands that Christ makes upon a believer. Be honest, they show no real interest in the service. Uh, they, they, they kind of are glazed over when we're singing. Like this. Uh, there's, there's, there's no ministry. There's no service involvement in the church. It's like, uh, I'm going to say a little later, like they come to suck the life out of the church and to receive. It's like they, they view the church kind of like a gas station. I need a fill up, but, but I'm not going to be loyal to any one place, or, or I'm certainly not going to go in and work for the gas station. 
Right? It's like they just serve my needs, and, and then when I need them, I'll return. There's people like that in here today. And then there's the curious. They would be even further extended. They're just kind of, they have really no understanding of Christ. They don't even bear pretense of knowing Christ. They're just curious about it. And so maybe, I mean, you're in one of those groups. It's not maybe. You're in one of those groups. And the message that Christ has to share in this Sermon on the Plain is a message for people in all of those groups. And I'm going to tell you what I think the theme of that message is in just a minute. All of these people, whether they be part of the core, the crowd, or the curious, are being drawn to Jesus because he is powerful. So he is popular, and he is powerful. And they come to him for several different reasons. They come, first of all, to hear him. They're drawn to his teaching. There's a spiritual hunger within them that, that, that there's something new on the scene, and this, this man is speaking with authority. He's, he's speaking different from all the different other people that we've listened to before, and so they're drawn to him, it says, to hear him, verse number 17. They're also drawn to him because of their physical troubles. They're drawn to him because they want to be healed of their diseases, and there's going to be a record of many of those in the Gospel of Luke. We've already seen one the uh, man who was paralyzed. And they're drawn to him, thirdly, because of spiritual or satanic oppression. They want to be uh, healed from the spirits, where is it, verse 18, that are tormenting them, and Jesus heals them. He has the power in his teaching, and he has the power in his healing. And this passage is, is not describing a world that is so different than the world we live in today. I already expressed that the different groups of people still exist and the different type of experiences still exist. We still live in a bleak and tired world where we're bombarded with these same ailments. And people are responding the same way. People are still spiritually hungry. That's why there are nine Joel Osteen books in Barnes & Noble, because people are buying them. Because people are curious and hungry spiritually. And they're hungry because there is a, a, uh, a vacuum within them that is unfilled. I'm starting a, a Sunday School series next week. And uh, boy, what a, what a series we've come to. And we've talked about it a lot on worship. And uh, We're going to be studying church history. The 500th anniversary of the Reformation is this October 31st, 1517. It's been 500 years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle and kind of began the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to study some of these things together. And so the book I grabbed uh, at Barnes & Noble was Confessions by St. Augustine of Hippo. And I just started, I read it a little bit before, and I just started flipping through the pages, kind of just searching for things. And he is the one that said, and it's on the very first page of his Confessions, and his book is about um, his struggle with doubt and his finding uh, faith in Christ. And he begins with this very familiar phrase where he says, uh, there is a hole inside every one of us, and we are restless until we find our rest in God. There is a restlessness in the world, a spiritual restlessness. They don't understand what it is. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're part of this group. They don't understand why it's happening, and they try to fill it with all kinds of other things. A friend of mine used to preach a sermon to teens called uh, with the Coke bottle. And he, and he kind of used the illustration that the Coke bottle was, was uh, designed for a specific purpose. What was the Coke bottle designed for? To be filled with Coke. 
but people use it for all kinds of other things, like maybe they juggle with it. Maybe they put sand in it. They take it to the beach and they collect pebbles. They put pencils in it and put it on their desk. They use it for decorations. They play spin the bottle. They use it for all kinds of, use bottles for all different kinds of things. But it's not fulfilling its purpose unless it's, and that was, that's a trite illustration. That's the same way it is with this vacuum in our hearts that, that is only filled when we find a relationship with Christ. And that's what the people are seeing here. We see uh, the world's attraction to spiritual things. They want to uh, follow the latest spiritual guru. They want to practice transcendental meditation. They want to be a part of Christian Scientology, right? The, these, these groups are growing by leaps and bounds because of that spiritual hunger that people have, and they're desperate to fill it. Here, they want to hear what Jesus has to say, and he is the one who gives us the truthful answer about how that hunger can be fulfilled. We're also a group of people that are hit with physical problems, and we could include any temporal ailments here, whether it be our health, uh, diseases, or even any sort of temporal struggle that enters into our lives. And finally, we also live in a world just like these folks did, where there is spiritual oppression. Whenever people hunger for spiritual things, Satan attempts to steer them into a different direction. This is why 2 Corinthians 4 says he blinds the minds of those from the glorious gospel of Christ. Satan doesn't care if you want to fulfill that spiritual hunger through meditation or through contemplative praying or through uh, Christian Scientology or through uh, some other spiritual means. He doesn't care. He, he, Satan wants you spiritual. Satan wants you to be spiritual because then you'll forget about what the claims of Christ are because you think, you think you're okay based on the fact that you're involved with something spiritually. What he blinds the minds to is the glorious gospel of Christ so that the light of Christ does not penetrate our sin-dark minds. And he then fills them with replacement, quote, doctrine of demons, in Timothy it says, like just do your best, or I believe in karma, or follow the golden rule, or worst of all, follow your heart. I read something this week about an eight-year-old who made uh, uh, an identity decision. Can I say it that way? An identity decision. And uh, was removed from a private school because of that decision because the school just was having difficulty explaining this to uh, all the other eight-year-olds or whatever. And, and uh, they're being sued now and, and so on. And, and the attorney for the child says, the worst thing, the worst thing you could say to a child is, don't follow your heart. You think about that in all kinds of other contexts. What if a child rises up and says, uh, I, I'd like to play in the highway at uh, rush hour. Is that okay? Well, we don't want to tell you not to follow your heart. I'd like to have seven Oreos before dinner. I'd like to kill my brother. I'd like to put the toaster in the bathtub with me. You know, this and this satanic teaching of follow your heart when Jeremiah tells us the heart is desperately wicked above all things. But if that kind of, I mean, how can you argue with that kind of wonderful dogma? Well, the 12 have just been selected, and Christ is going to begin this intense internship with them and teach them what I believe is one of the most important messages that he would give. It's going to be the first message that he gives to them after they've entered into this year-and-a-half-long discipleship training program 
So the first thing is going to be of primary importance. Well, how could we summarize this message to people who are spiritually hungry, to people who are spiritually oppressed, and to people who are physically beaten down? Many people believe that this is just a message, just like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's kind of a sermon about ethics or morality. It's just how to, how to best live your life. Um, and, and there are some things like that, right? Just turn the other cheek. Follow the golden rule. Give your cloak to someone who needs it, right? Love your enemies. And people, people kind of like that teaching uh, because it, it does promote kind of uh, the good of society or, or welfare in society, right? Those are good things that society will hold to. Yet, yet Christ doesn't begin with those, and the, the, that's not the point of the message. The point of the message is not to be how to be a good person in society. Here is the point of the sermon. It is nothing less than a sermon that identifies who are believers and who are not. It tells you who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. It tells us who is a person who is saved and who is a person who is not. If you want to know the question, the answer to the question, how can I be certain that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, you read this sermon. Because this sermon tells you whether you are or whether you're not. And if you're not interested in the answer to that question, you have a fundamental problem. And I pray that the Lord would open your heart to that. He begins this internship, this sermon, with the idea of how to be blessed. And I've already mentioned that the world's opinion of blessing and Christ's teaching on it are radically different. Luke chooses only four of the Beatitudes, and he adds these counterpoint woes to them. Okay? Uh, the world's opinion of being blessed really is in the category of woes to Jesus. Look at verses 24 to 26. Woe to those who are, say it, rich. Woe to those who are full. Woe to those who laugh. Woe to those when they speak well of you. I mean, wealth, abundance, laughter, and popularity. That sounds pretty good. That sounds like a blessed life. I want to say that almost every time I get an AP at Speedway, almost every time, I would say 90% of the time, if there's a customer in front of me, they're buying lottery tickets. Almost every time. And it's, it's kind of like if I just hit the jackpot, then the life will be blessed. Or if I can just achieve in my career, or if I can just somehow advance to the point where all of my coworkers kind of come to me for, for everything, and, I, and, and I'm the, the hit of the office or whatever. The, uh, people are speaking well. We'd say that's the blessed life, but Christ is saying that that is woe to people in that way. And then he says, blessed are the poor, verse 20. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when men hate, exclude, revile, and cast you out. That is the blessed life. So many times I have stated there are only two groups of people in the world. Okay? And the Bible uses all kinds of different terms to describe them. There's the wicked and the righteous. There's the wheat and the tares. There's the sheep and the goats. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. And here, there, what are the two groups? What are the two groups? So here, there's only two groups. What is the two? Or what are the words that he uses? They're the blessed people or the people who have woe, or we could say cursing. There's people who are blessed and people who are cursed. 
There is no spiritual no man's land. There, there is no this kind of, like when you play capture the flag and you have this side over here and you have this side over here and you kind of have this no man's land in the middle where everybody's safe. You don't have a spiritual no man's land where people are just kind of wandering around. Well, I'm kind of into God and I'm kind of not. No, you're either in this category or you're in this category. And Christ is going to draw a distinctive line to share and to describe the people who are in each. Okay? Before we look at those, let's describe what the word blessed and the word woe means. The word blessed means to possess the favor of God. Possess the favor of God. It's the state of being when one is marked by grace and favor from God. It is not being happy. The word happy mean, it comes from a root word hap, which means circumstance or situation. In other words, a person who has good luck. To be blessed is the idea that God has, it is not, it is not simply that we have favorable circumstances, but that God, in fact, has favored us. And the people who he favors are poor, hungry, weeping, reviled, cast out people. And on the opposite end of that spectrum, the people who are cursed are the word woe, which is almost like onomatopoeia. On the Greek word kind of sounds like that. Um, it's, an, it's, a, it's the idea of someone who is worthy of pity, uh, someone who is in disaster, someone who has faced utter calamity. Right? Here's how he describes those two groups. The blessings... Describe a true follower of Jesus, what a disciple really is. And the woes describe people who are not believers. So, we start a message this morning called Marks of a True Disciple. What does it mean to be a true disciple? Now, originally, what I was hoping to do is do all eight of these at once. We're not going to be able to do that. That time is already fleeing away from us now. So, we want to do the foundational one, and then next week we'll do the rest. The foundational one is listed in verse 20. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then the counterpoint to that is verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In the other passage, okay, blessed are you poor. Okay, you want to be a true disciple? Then you got to be poor. That's what it's saying. You got to be poor. So let's explain what that means. In the other sermons, Matthew 5 to 7, it says blessed are the poor, finish it, in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke doesn't say that here, which has led some people to believe that what Jesus is really proclaiming here is something different, that he is really describing uh, the blessings for people who are economically poor. And, and they, they kind of equate that to the whole of Luke's gospel, which is a gospel that is for the outcast. It is for the poor. It starts right away with the gospel being given, in a sense, to Zacharias and Anna, these long-forsaken old folks who never had a child, and it seemed like God wasn't blessing them, they receive really the initial blessings of the gospel and that she will bear John the Baptist. Then it comes to Mary, a young woman who's going to receive this blessing. Then it, the first giving of the gospel, when Christ, after Christ's incarnation, the first giving of the gospel was to who? After the incarnation of Christ, who was the first giving of the gospel to? Shepherds and the, these outcasts, these poor Lonely, disgusting people, they received the gospel. So Luke's gospel really is a picture of Christ's love for the poor. But is that what it's really saying? That you're blessed if you're materially poor. 
your bank account is small. Are you blessed? Well, in some senses, I could suppose we could say that's true. Why are people who are materially poor blessed? Now think of that question for a minute. If you're poor, are you blessed? And you say, you're nuts, pal. But think about that question for a minute, and I'll answer it in a second. It does have an element of truth to it, but if it was referring simply or only or merely to the materially, that's a hard word for me to say, poor, economically poor, then we should never help the poor because we'd take their blessing away. Right? Someone comes to us, and we get the calls all the time. And we've been able to help some people, and some people we just can't, and we invite them to come to church, and of course we'd help them then. You know, I, I need this. I need electricity paid. I need the grocery paid, or whatever. We'd love to help those people. But, but should we say, if someone comes to the door, you know, folks, I, I just need a tank of gas to get to the doctor. My wife, I'm sorry you're poor. We don't want to rob that blessing from you. So just keep being poor then. Okay, so there's got to be more to it than just being economically poor. And certainly... When it says yours is the kingdom of God, God doesn't simply give salvation to people who are struggling economically. But we'll answer that question here in just a second. The word poor, blessed are the poor, means to cower like a beggar. It actually comes from a root word in the Greek that means to crouch down. Uh, I've told you this before. In Chicago, we'd be walking to the park to play football, and there'd be person after person after person just kind of crouched down with a cup, wanting money. That's the idea, beggar. Now, how... How pathetic does your situation have to be before you sit on a cold Chicago street and ask college kids for money? I mean, you've got to really be at the lowest point in your life. The word has come to mean complete destitution or utter helplessness. And people can be utterly helpless in an economic sense, but it's talking as well in a spiritual sense. Christ has come to proclaim the good news of the gospel to people who are utterly helpless. And we know that we all are. In Isaiah 53, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the truth of depravity of man is also recorded for us in Romans 3 when it says there is none righteous, not even one. All of us have turned aside. All of us has become worthless. So when we say God has come, or Christ is saying the kingdom of God is for anybody who is utterly helpless, we can't say that because then salvation would be given to everybody because everybody is utterly helpless. There is not a universal gospel for all people. What is being expressed here, blessed are you poor, is that salvation and true disciples are people who admit their utter helplessness. People who recognize they are completely destitute before God. Salvation cannot and will not be given to people who think they're okay. It will not be people given to people who say they are good people. This is why you can make a dividing line when you share the gospel and say, why do you think God should offer you salvation? If they say, I'm a good person, they're violating exactly what Christ said here, blessed are the poor. Because they are not able to recognize their complete unworthiness before a holy God and their complete need for dependence on this good grace of God. It is only for people, salvation is, for people who admit their nothingness before God. The gospel is for the poor. And I've said this before uh, in class, and maybe I've not said it here, but when the Bible says uh, anybody who comes to me must come as a little child, must come as a little child, 
I've always referred to that as someone who comes to Jesus must come with, and, and how does a child come? How does a child come? Uh, and uh, Forgive me for using similar illustrations, but like if Jessa wanted an Oreo today after lunch, and, and what, what does she have to say to me that's going to make me want to give it? You know, Dad, I'll uh, wash the car. Oh, okay. You know, is she going to offer something? What credits does she have? Right, what ability can she offer me? What is she doing when she asks for an Oreo? She's throwing herself completely on the grace of me, right? Right? And, and that's the sense of coming as a little child. I, I say it this way. We come with no credits, no claims, no clout. We don't come to God telling him all that we have. We say that we're nothing. and We don't deserve anything. But will you please give me salvation? And the person who says that gets it. Until we are poor in spirit, we are in, incapable of receiving the favor of God. When I said the blessed word here, the, the word blessed here means having the favor of God rest upon us. The favor of God cannot and will not rest upon people who are self-sufficient, who are already full. Okay? Christ is not precious enough to those who don't recognize their own want spiritually. Now, we said, does it, is it referring to being materially? <laughs> say is it referring to people who are just financially poor? Two, probably because in Matthew 19, verses 23 to 24, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, just in case you didn't get that, it is, this is Jesus saying it, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So is it a blessing to be poor financially? Yeah, because wealth is a big barrier, Christ says, to entering the kingdom. I didn't say it, Jesus did. Who wants to fit a camel through the eye of a needle? Right? Jesus is basically saying it's nearly impossible for rich people to come to Christ because they are sufficient. You should be glad if you are struggling financially because it makes you dependent on God and it also gives you a sense of need spiritually. Folks, we've done all kinds of door knocking, all kinds of visitation, all kinds of invitations to Kids for Truth or, or uh, evangelistic meetings or soccer camp. We've gone to all kinds of different places. Do you know where we get the best response? People who are poor. We don't get great responses in gated communities or the big subdivisions. And that is a demonstration of this. When you go to rich people and say, you know what, you need Jesus, they say, I don't need a thing. You seen my house? You seen what we have? Why would I need Jesus? So there is a blessing to being financially poor. 1 Timothy 6.17 speaks to that also. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be proud, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Those who are not poor, in other words, what I've said that word means is they recognize their utter nothingness before God will never find Christ precious. Not only that, they'll never find Christ needed. And those who are poor find him to be both. 1 Peter 2, 6-8. It says this in Scripture, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. 
whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Look at Luke chapter 16. Can I show you an instance of this? Look at, well, it's, excuse me, Luke 18. Look at Luke 18. We'll look at Luke 16 in a minute. You, to be a, let me, let me say this as clearly as I can, to be a real follower of Christ, you must admit you are nothing. You have nothing. You can do nothing. You will be nothing. It's a pretty pathetic thing. You know, the Joel Osteen book called You Are Nothing is not going to sell. But a book that says I Am, or Your Best Life Now, or Every Day a Friday, those are going to sell. But, but write the truth. You are nothing, you have nothing, you will be nothing. You'll continue to be nothing. You're nothing. Oh, that sounds like a great book. I want to read that. Sounds like a great self-help thing. It's the best self-help thing you can read because it's the truth of how to come to Christ. Look at uh, Luke 18. It's so clearly seen here. So clearly seen here how the the tie into financial well-being hinders spiritual well-being. And I'm not saying we should live poor or there's a sin in being wealthy. It is it is an extra barrier though as the scripture teaches. Look at verse 18. Eight, so this is 18:18. Luke 18:18. 18, 18. Now a certain ruler asked him saying, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Most of us would say, uh, let me walk through the Romans road with you right now. Hey, you're ready. Let's pray to receive eternal life. This guy is all set. And Jesus, knowing the man's heart, says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commands? He lists a few. Verse 21. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. What is he not admitting? He's not admitting his worthlessness, his nothingness. Yes, he's, you're saying sin, and that's right. He's not admitting his sin, but he's not admitting admitting I am nothing, I am spiritually poor. He's saying I'm spiritually okay. And part of the reason he feels that way is because of his wealth. Because Jesus says, okay, let's go to the heart of the issue then. Here's why you feel that way. Sell everything that you have and distribute it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When he heard this, he became sorrowful because he was very rich. You know what? He was rich in a couple of ways. He was loaded. He could treat everybody to lunch after church. He was loaded. But he was also loaded spiritually. He was full of himself spiritually. And the passage back in Luke says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have your consolation now. Look at Luke 16. Let's travel back to Luke 6 through Luke 16. Okay? Through Luke 16. Look at this. Um... I'll probably mention it again, but since we're on our way back to Luke 6. Uh, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and we won't take the whole time to read it. You might review it later this afternoon for further edification for yourself, verses 18 to 31. But, but I want to specifically point to um, verse 25. Okay, verse 25. The rich man, of course, went to hell, not because he was rich, but because he never had trusted Christ, and maybe richness was a barrier for him. The beggar, the poor man, went to heaven, not because he was poor, but perhaps that helped him to admit his other worthlessness before God. And verse 25 says, uh, Abraham speaks. This is across the divide in Sheol. We talked about this last Sunday night, if you were with us. And he says, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. You had it made. Likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. With that in mind, look at Luke 6 one more time. Hold that phrase in your memory. I'll read it to you again while you're on your way back to Luke 6. Um, You had good things in this life, 
like, likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, you are tormented. Comforted sounds like what? Starts with a B. Blessed. Tormented sounds like what? Starts with a W. Whoa. Look at verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. If you're after your best life now, then you got it. You know when your best life's coming as a Christian? <laughs> the moment you croak. Right? The moment you die will be the best moment of your life as a believer. Because in, in this life, you struggled. You had trial. You had the type of things we mentioned. You had the physical disabilities. You had the, the spiritual oppression. You had those types of beatings and, and troubles and trials. But, but now you have consolation. Whereas the rich, they receive their consolation in this life. Financial poverty makes disciples aware of their need and their dependence upon God. We must admit our spiritual nothingness. Now, here's, here's a, a way I can express it one more time, and I'm beating this drum because this is the first and foremost of all of the blessings. This is really the beginning of discipleship. You cannot enter a discipleship relationship with Christ unless you first do this. So after the, uh, uh, right before the bookstore on Friday night, someone had given us a, uh, a small gift card to Panera Bread. So we're going to, okay, we're going to go use this gift card before the kids go away. And I get up to the, we're always this way when we go out because uh, we're not going to obviously spend 100 bucks on a meal. So we got this partial gift card. We're going to use it and offset the bill. So I tell the lady, I said, we got six people here who need to eat, and, and we're poor. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know if I said it that way, but it's like, we need help. So finagle, so, so we're finagling all these things, and, and uh, she's like, well, can I suggest this? I don't know if I said these words, but it's almost like we can't afford that. We can't afford that. We're all having water. We're sharing bread. You know, we're eating out of the same soup bowl. That's not that bad, but you understand what I'm saying. And, and in some senses, people who approach God have to approach it like that. And that's how when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and met, this is stupid, what I'm about to say, but it's the way I think. Imagine Jesus being that Panera Bread wait, waiter and, and, and having this relationship and, and, and the rich man coming in and saying, I'd like to have eternal life. And Jesus saying, and, and what must I do? All the guy had to say to, to Jesus is, I can't afford it, right? I can, will you just give me eternal life? Because I don't have anything, I don't, I don't merit it. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. Please just give it to me. I beg you, give it to me. And Jesus would do it. Because he says to the woman at the well, if you had known who it was that you were speaking to, I would have given you the water of life. Right? Freely. In some senses, and, and really in every sense, we have to say, I am nothing. I can do nothing. Do you admire yourself about anything? Then you're not poor in spirit. If you think you're kind of with it, then you're not poor. Now, in studying church history, I'm going to kind of conclude with these thoughts here. In studying church history over the last few weeks to prepare for our Sunday school class, I was listening to a, a, a seminary message on an introduction to church history. And, he, and the guy was instructing the seminary students to find a mentor from church history. Okay, pick a person from church history and just, just uh, listen to and, and read all that that person has to say. I've already done that, right? My, my mentor is Thomas Watson. I've talked to you about him before, the Puritan, the great preacher in the 1600s. And listen to, just listen to a couple of things he says. Okay? 
he that is poor is ever complaining of his spiritual estate. He is much like a poor man who is ever telling you of his wants. He has nothing to help himself with. He's ready to starve. So it is with he who is poor in spirit. He is ever complaining. That's the second time he said that, and I point that out. He is ever complaining of his wants, saying, I want a broken heart. I want a thankful heart. I want a clean heart. This is the difference between a hypocrite and a child of God. A hypocrite is ever telling of what he has. A child of God complains about what he lacks. And here, here's the punch. One is glad because he is so good, while the other grieves because he is so bad. That's the difference. That's the blessing and woe. It's almost like Watson is pulling it out. Blessed is the one who grieves because he's so bad, and woe to the one who is glad because he's so good. And I emphasize that phrase, ever complaining. Because not only does this mark the way we come to Christ, it characterizes all those who have come to Christ. Does that make sense, what I just said? Because I know we're getting late in the hour. It's already 1141. But let's say it again. It, ever complaining means it's not just our initial response. It's not just like to get salvation, we say, God, I'm nothing, please forgive me, please accept me. And then we say, oh, good, I'm here. And now we don't need him for everything. Now we're kind of self-sufficient. The child of God, the rest of his life, is constantly going to complain about how pathetic spiritually he is and how poor and desperate he is for God for everything. God, I want to serve you, but I have no ability. God, I want to be a, 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 I want to preach the word this morning, but I am nothing. Can you imagine coming to the pulpit? Boy, those people are lucky to have me today. I studied hard. I worked hard. I've got a great way of crafting little funny stories. I can tease Max, and everybody will, be, will leave just titillated because of my great speech. That is not being poor ever complaining. And what these people receive who do this is the kingdom of God, the blessing and favor upon their life. The person who comes to God as nothing gets everything, while those who are rich receive their consolation. Does this describe you? Have you admitted your nothingness to God? And do you continue to do that? Do you have a feeling right now, even as a Christian, that you are utterly unworthy of anything Christ would ever do for you or through you? If you don't, then you may not be a true disciple of Christ because that's the point of this sermon. It's not just saying, Jesus is not just saying, it would be kind of nice if you were like this. He's saying, this is the truth. If you are a true disciple, you are poor. And you will be the rest of your life. But the great blessing is, just like that, just like Lazarus, the rich will receive their, their, their tormenting while we receive our consolation. How blessed it is to be poor. Father, thank you so much for all that we've learned today.